I'm sure I've told this story before, but in light of the text tonight in Exodus chapter 24, it bears repeating. August of 1989, I had come to a point in my life. There's my pen. <laughs> I'm looking for my pen. There it is. I'd come to a point in my life where I didn't want to do business as usual. I didn't want to just live and serve and preach and die and go to heaven. I wanted God to do something different with me. And about that time, we were having some special Monday night services, and uh, Manly Beasley came to preach. Now, this church never got the opportunity to hear Manly Beasley, but if we had, we would have never forgotten it. You had to be spiritually ready for Manly to show up. And I wasn't sure I was ready for it, but I knew I needed it. We had church on Sunday morning, and didn't have church that night and came back for church on Monday night. And Manly and Marthy came to our house and spent a couple hours and we ate supper and fellowship together. And then we had church on Monday night and about five minutes before the service started, Manly walked up to me and he was not in good health. Of course, for the last 20 years of his life, he wasn't in good health. Uh, in fact, Jonathan used to always say to me when I'd say something, say, you know, dad said that just before he got sick. Uh, he had always kind of rubbed that in on me, but uh, uh, Manly walked up to me and he patted me on the shoulder and he said, Son, when I get through tonight, you'll know if your ministry here is over. So immediately, I paid attention because I didn't know what he was going to do. And so I went down and found Terry and I said, I don't know what Manly's going to do, but he says, We're going to know when he gets through tonight, my ministry's over. So I listened that night. Manly Beasley preached on Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. An angel came down and touched Isaiah's lips. But you see, before Isaiah could go, he had to say, Woe is me. Before we can ever be used of God, we have to see how we stand before God. It was one of those services where, I don't know, you just maybe it's just a preacher thing. It's just one of those services where I was sitting there and I knew out of the 400, 450 people that were there that night, I knew the, the altar of the church was going to be flooded. I just knew people were going to be backed up to the back. I mean, he preached on the sermon, who wants to see the glory of God in his church? That was his sermon. I thought, you know, this is a no-brainer. I mean, we say we're saved. We say we love God. Everybody's going to want to come see the glory of God. When the invitation was over and I got up, we had a five-member pulpit committee that called me to that church. Two of those people, two of those men were at the altar, and all the men on my staff and their wives, and that was it. Eleven people out of 400 wanted to see the glory of God. Manly Beasley walked off the platform that night and he patted me on the shoulder and he said, well, now you know. It's over here. And three weeks later, the pulpit committee of Sherwood called me for the third time. And I knew by what happened there 
and what happened three weeks later that I was through where I was. There wasn't any doubt in my mind. There wasn't any question in my mind. I knew God had released me from all responsibility for that place. And in knowing that, I realized that here was a church that had an opportunity to see God's glory and emphatically dug their heels in and decided, by God, we won't. We don't want that. And you're not going to make us have it. And they resisted the Holy Spirit with an arrogance that I have rarely seen in my life, an arrogance of spiritual pride that was so nauseating it was almost unbearable to even see it, much less to sense it. In the three months following that worship service, every staff member was gone to another church, and those two members of the pulpit committee were relocated to other towns. It was as if God said, y'all want to see the glory of God? I'll take you where you can, but you don't have to stay here anymore. And I say all that because I am convinced that there are windows of opportunity and moments when we can have the blessings and the glory of God and then there are those moments when we realize we have waited too late and we've passed our opportunity and our moment is gone and I'm not sure we can recover it. I'm convinced that that happens with churches. I'm convinced that it happens with people. But I know this, we determine the level of our blessings. And we determine the level of our intimacy with God. Nobody else determines that for me. You do not determine the level of my intimacy with God. I determine that for myself. And I can't determine it for you. You have to decide that for yourself. And so I want us to look tonight at this passage with the idea that only those who seek him find him. I asked myself a question earlier this week. Thousands and thousands of churches will have met today. Hundreds of thousands of churches will have met, and in those churches, people will have prayed. They will have asked God to save the lost. They will have asked God to speak to the hearts of people. They will ask God for decisions during the invitation. They will have asked God to meet them in power. And most of those churches will go with unanswered prayers today. Although people have prayed for it, it won't happen. Is that because God is unwilling? I don't think God's unwilling to pour out his blessing on a church. Is that because God is unable? I don't think God is unable to pour out his blessings on a church. But I believe that the level of commitment of his people determines what he can do. Because I don't believe that God will force himself on any church that doesn't want him. Now he says where two or three are gathered in his midst, there he is in the midst of them. But I tell you, the Lord can be in a place and you not know it. But when you are open to it, you'll know it. As I think back about the scriptures and I think back about life, I am reminded of something I heard someone say a long time ago. The presence of the Holy Spirit is hard to define, but his absence is easy to detect. 
presence of the Holy Spirit is hard to define. If you were to ask me, define what a Spirit-filled church is, I'm not sure I can define that. But I know what the absence of the Holy Spirit is like. I've preached in some churches like that. How about you, Joel? You ever preached in any? I mean, you just walked up and you knew the moment you got there, this is dead as a doornail. Nothing's going to happen tonight because these people don't want anything to happen. That's one of the reasons why I rarely do revivals because most people have a revival just to have a meeting. It's not because they really want to meet God. I'm convinced that most churches don't want to pay the price of revival because when they find out what it costs, they think it's cost too much. And so they don't want it. They don't want to be with God. They don't want God to upset their apple cart. But as I look at the scripture, I see that Moses used to talk to God face to face as a man speaks to a friend. Moses got to the top of the mountain to get the stone tablets and to speak to God. Peter, James, and John got to go to the Mount of Transfiguration and see Moses and Elijah. Why those three and not the other nine? Did God love them more than he loved the other ones? No. God doesn't have favorites, but God does have intimates. God has people that want to know him more than other people want to know him. And I've always been convicted in my life when I get around some people. When I got around Manly Beasley, I got convicted. Because he seemed to know God like I didn't know him. When I get around Ron Dunn, I get convicted. Because it seems God speaks to Ron in ways that he doesn't speak to me. When I would sit with Vance Havner, I would be in awe of a man who dropped out of college in his freshman year of college and yet wrote 38 books and preached all over the country and was booked for five years after he was dead. And I thought, Lord, I don't, I don't know you like that. When I get around Don Miller, I think about how inadequate my prayer life is. When I sat with Layman Strauss, I realized what a poor student of the Word that I am. And I've asked myself the question, is it that God loves those men more than he loves me? No. It's just that those men wanted to go further with God than I wanted to go. They were willing to pay whatever price it took, and they have all paid heavy prices to follow God. Theirs has not been a life of ease. Theirs has been a life of tough times, sorrow, and hurt, and pain. And there were times when I thought, you know, Lord, I'd like to get to know you like that, but I don't want to pay that price. I think I forgot to share this last week in our sermon last week, but... One of the things Ron always says about when he preached with Manly, he said people would come up to him and say, you know, so I tell you what, I just wish I had faith like Manly Beasley. He said, no, you don't, because you don't want to go through what Manly Beasley went through to get that kind of faith. It's easy for us to say, oh, I wish I knew the Bible like Layman Strauss. I wish I could pray like Don Miller. I wish I could make the Bible just make sense like Ron Dunn does. I, I wish I understood the Bible like my Sunday school teacher understands it. I wish I could look at it and get all that out of it that they get. And the truth of the matter is, we don't really. Because we're not willing to humble ourselves enough 
to get in a position for God to begin to bless us like he wants to. I know that when I stand before God, it will be Michael Cat and Michael Cat alone that is responsible for the level of my intimacy with God. I won't have anybody else to point a finger at. I won't have anyone else to say, well, they kept me from being closer to you. Or that situation caused me to not have time to be with you. I'll have to answer for me and for me alone. And quite honestly, our problem is a lot like people who fly. We're just willing to go second class because it's cheaper. We're all going to get to heaven. We're all going on the same plane, but some seats are cheaper than others. We walk past first class and we sneer at those people and accuse them of wasting money and being frivolous, but the truth of the matter is we like to sit in those leather chairs and get those nice cloth napkins and have that stewardess wait on us hand and foot, but we don't want to pay the price to be there. So we fly coach. We fly standby. We go cheap. We do the same thing with our Christian life. How little can I do and be in heaven when I die? And so tonight, I want us to look at Moses on his trip to the mountain. Now, this may bother some of you, but very rarely, only one occasion in the Bible did God ever call anybody to the beach to talk to him, and that was Simon Peter on the shores of the Sea of Galilee after he denied him. Most of the time when God called people to talk to him, he took them to the mountains. And if you were spiritual, you'd understand that. <laughs> I don't know what it is about mountains, but I know that when you get in the mountain, the air is clearer, the perspective is broader, and you begin to focus on the majesty of God. And somewhere on that mountain, Moses met God. And I want you to see four classifications, and in these four groups, every one of us in this room will be in one of these four groups. Number one, the crowd that follows from a distance. The crowd that follows from a distance. Now, I would say, under normal circumstances, that that would be basically your Sunday morning church people who come on Sunday morning, never plan to come back on Sunday night, but that's not always true, but it is in many ways true. And go back to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, the crowd that follows from a distance. Exodus 19 and verse 10. The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set bounds for all the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Now, God's about to give his holy law. He's about to give his Ten Commandments. But here's what he says to the crowd, to the masses. You can approach the mountain, but you cannot ascend the mountain. You can come close enough to see but you can't get any closer than that. Now, why would God do that? Well, chapter 19 and verse 17, And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God 
and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now, what was God doing? God was keeping them away from the mountain where his holy presence was going to be revealed because God knew these people weren't right with him. God knew that they were not willing to pay the price to follow him. God knew that they still had too much of Egypt in them, that there was murmuring and complaining and an idle heart in the, inside of them that they would build a golden calf the first opportunity they got. God knew he couldn't trust them with the revelation of his presence. And one of the things that happens is that people can get saved and then God can't trust them with any more than just saving them and getting them out of hell and into heaven because they're not willing to pay the price to get things out of their life. And so we have these people approaching them out. Look at chapter 24 and verse 1 chapter 24 and verse 1. They're following at a distance. They're following at a distance. And then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. Now notice they're worshiping. These people are believers. They believe in God, but they're worshiping at a distance, and God is requiring the distance. And he says, only Moses shall come near. The word come near means to approach. Only Moses shall, shall touch me. Only Moses shall approach me. In the human sense, it is the word for sexual intimacy. Only Moses is going to get to know me intimately. Now, the first time that word is used, it's used of Abraham's intercession for Sodom and Gomorrah. When Abraham drew near or came near to God to intercede on behalf of sinful people, he was willing to get into the presence of God and to negotiate with God through prayer about how many righteous people there had to be for him to spare Sodom. It's a word of intimacy. Psalm 24 and verse 3, Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, and has not sworn deceitfully. Israel had promised two times all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do, but they didn't do it. So they had to follow at a distance. By the way, the majority of believers always stay at the base of the mountain. They follow at a distance. Part of the problem with America today is we haven't had to suffer enough for our faith. It's too easy. Joining a church is too easy. Being a part of a church is too easy. We complain about the air conditioning and the heat and the parking lots, and in other parts of the world, they're worrying about their relatives being killed for the gospel. Amazing what your priorities are when life is on the line. Here are these people at a distance because they've had it so good that they've forgotten that the only reason they had it good was because God was good. There's a second group, the priests who play it safe in verse 9 of chapter 24. Then Moses went up with Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. Now remember, one group is down in the valley, and they can't touch it. They can approach it, but they can't ascend it. They saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. 
Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, and they saw God, and they ate and drank. Now there's three million people at the base of the mountain. All these Israelites are standing around at the base of the mountain, and God has called up 70 plus Moses and Joshua. And they come, and they see God, and they eat and they drink. But I want you to notice, to go from being a casual believer to going into the presence of God and experiencing things with God, you go from 3 million to 70 in one step. The numbers thin out. The numbers begin to get smaller and smaller. And this group had a vision of God. They got a glimpse, but it didn't change them. Now here's the danger of the priest who play it safe. We often go on mission trips and disciple nows and camps, and we come back and we say, oh, I tell you what, my life's been changed forever. I saw God. I experienced God. My life's different. I'm going to be different. I'm going to go back and win my school to Christ. And uh, I'll tell you what, I'm sorry, but I'm cynical enough to sit with my arms folded and say, we'll see. See, I don't care how high you jump. I want to know how straight you walk when you land. These people saw God. Wow! We got to see God, and he didn't strike us dead. And they ate with him, and they drank with him. They got to have a meal with God. And they came back and said, man, we got in the presence of God. We got to eat with him. I mean, you should have seen where he was standing. It was like sapphire underneath his feet. And then just a few chapters later, those same men are building golden calves. It's easy to get excited. But if you can't walk the walk, don't talk the talk. It's easy to say, boy, that camp, that revival, that service, that event, that concert, man, that was incredible. Boy, I tell you what, we got so fired up and everything was so great. Uh-huh. Time will tell how great it was. I don't want to put water on any fire because God knows we need some more fires burning. But I want to tell you, I am tired of people making decisions in the shallowest part of their being. You will never change your life if you're only worshiping God on the emotional level. Your worship of God has to go to an act of your will. If you're waiting for God to blow the doors off and to blow your socks off and to just give you this wild experience so you can have this feeling to get God. I'm going to tell you, you can eat with God, you can drink with God, you can see God, you can worship God, you can leave church and say, man, that was incredible, and go out and cuss God before the next day's over. Why? Because seeing God is not enough. Joel, you remember at Faith Week, Manly stood up to preach? I wrote it down in my Bible. A glimpse of God will save you. But if you gaze at him, it will sanctify you. So all you got to do is see God to be saved. But if you want to be sanctified, you got to keep your eyes on him. Just a glimpse of him, that will save you. But they saw God, but they didn't stay focused on him. They got off the mountain and they chose to go back to the ways of Egypt. Isn't that just like the people who followed Jesus who were called disciples in the Gospels? 
And they came for the bread, and they came for the miracles, and they came for the parties, and they came for the parades, and they shouted Hosanna, but Jesus didn't believe the crowd that was shouting Hosanna because he knew in a few days those same people shouting Hosanna would also be shouting crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas. You see, the closer Jesus got to the cross, the more people peeled off and peeled away from him. The closer he got to what discipleship really meant and what following God really meant, the more people said, you know what, I don't know if I want to do that. Luke chapter 14, he gave the cost of discipleship and Luke records that many left him that day. I had a lady in our church tell me a few weeks ago, because sin is our problem, isn't it? You can say whatever you want to say, but until we become sinlessly perfect, which we're not going to be on this side of eternity, until we become that way, we're going to have to keep talking about sin because sin is a problem. For me, it's a problem for you. So unless we want to tear out about three-fourths of the Bible, we're going to have to deal with it. We're going to have to come face to face with it, and it's not fun, and it's not comfortable. But if we ever want to get out of the valley and up the mountain, we can't settle for just a little glimpse and a little fun worship service and and a lot of being happy in the Lord. We've got to go out of this place and be different people. All of us are part of the priesthood believers, but I, I tell you, it's not all of us are living like priests, holy and set apart to God. We come to church and we get our hearts emotionally stirred, but we don't really change. Folks, I'm not interested in us just being stirred emotionally. I want God to break our hearts about what our sin has done to him, about what our sin has cost him, about what it took for him to save us so we could worship him and enjoy him and fellowship with him and with one another. You move higher up the mountain now and you find a man who placed himself in a position to be blessed in verse 12. Now the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses arose with Joshua, his servant, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. But to the elders, he said, wait here for us until we return to you. Now notice something. The higher you move up the mountain, the more narrow the trail becomes. Seventy could get up the mountain. They could see God. They could eat with God. They could drink with God. They could fellowship with God. But now the trail is narrow going up the mountain. Now there's only room for two. Moses goes up, but his servant Joshua goes with him. Now, you would have thought it would have been Aaron. But you see, God knew Aaron's heart. And God knew Aaron would cave in to peer pressure and not follow the will of God. And so Aaron had to stay. And he said, you stay here until we get back. And Joshua gets to go. Why? 
because Joshua wanted what Moses wanted. Joshua had a heart like Moses. He wanted to know God. He wanted to walk with God. He was available to God. And you see, he was his servant, his minister. Joshua's role was to minister to Moses. His role was to be a blessing in Moses' life. Now let me tell you why that's important. Today's servants are tomorrow's sovereigns. Today's servants are tomorrow's sovereigns. You see, Joshua wasn't afraid to do the menial and the little things to help Moses in his life and in his ministry. And today's servant, God will find his faithfulness and raise him to a position as God's sovereign in a position of leadership. Are there any clues as to why Moses would take Joshua? Yes, there is. Exodus 33. Exodus 33 and verse 10. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, and all the people would arise and worship, each at the entrance of his tent, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses would go and meet with God. Moses would leave, but Joshua would stay. Now let me tell you how you get in the inner circle. Your priorities are his priorities. Your time becomes his time. Your life is his life. You're faithful, you're available, you're teachable, you're open, you're listening. And Moses would leave and he would go back and take care of the business. But Joshua just wanted to stay more in the presence of God. Joshua wanted to listen. Joshua wanted to learn. Joshua wanted to find out what it was that made Moses the man that he was. And I want to encourage you Spend a little more time than you think necessary at the tent of meeting with God. Because about the time you think you need to leave is you're on, right on the edge of what you really need to hear. But then there's a person who can enjoy and experience intimacy with God. Verse 15, back in chapter 24. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it for six days. And the seventh day he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud, and the, to the eyes of the sons of Israel the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. And notice, they thought it was a fire, but Moses entered the midst of the cloud, and as he went up the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days... And 40 nights. The people saw fire and they heard thunder and they were afraid. But Moses, for 40 days, is up there worshiping God. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. That word rested means to settle down or to take up residence. God just moved in, took over, and he invited Moses to come in. 
You know, we can come to church and invite God to come and join us, or we can ask God to be here and ask Him if we can join Him. His glory rested and He resided on the mountain and Moses walked in the presence of the glory of God for 40 days and 40 nights. He was never the same. Why Moses? Well, five reasons, I think. Not exhaustive, but I think there are five reasons. Number one, Moses was a broken man. Moses was a broken man. Forty years of self-sufficiency, thinking he was in charge. Forty years in the desert, finding out he was nothing. Only when he found out he was nothing did he find out he could lead. Moses was a man who was broken. He was broken of his pride. He was broken of his self-sufficiency. He was broken before God to realize he was a man who had been trained in the finest schools of Egypt. He was a man who had all the talent. He was a man who had everything going his way. And when God finally called him, he had been so broken, he said, God, I can't do anything. And God said, now I've got you where I want you. Now I've got you where I can use you. Now that you've realized it's all about me and it's not all about you, we can go somewhere. By the way, you never really do anything for God that lasts. Whatever lasts, God does in you and through you. It's not you doing it for him, it's him doing it in you. Moses was broken. Secondly, Moses was teachable. Exodus chapter 19, 18, he had a little discussion with his father-in-law about how to lead, and he was trying to manage everything, and he wasn't delegating anything. And his father-in-law said, you know, you need to kind of break this up and divide and conquer here, Moses. You're going to kill yourself, wear yourself out, hearing all these people and hearing all these problems. You need to get you a staff around you. You need to delegate some of those responsibilities to that staff, and you need to let them do their job, and only when it's something they can't handle, then you consider it. Now, why was that important? Because if Moses had kept going, busy, 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 trying to handle all the problems of all the people, he wouldn't have had time to leave for 40 days and get on a mountain and hear from God. He would have been so busy, say, Lord, I'm so busy doing what you've called me to do, I don't have time to do what I need to do. Sometimes we're too busy to spend time with God, which lets us know we've taken things into our hands instead of letting God take it in his hands. There's a third thing. Moses had a divine perspective. Turn back to Exodus 33:11. We read it just a moment ago. Exodus 33:11. The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. In Numbers chapter 12 and verse 8, with him I will speak mouth to mouth. Something about Moses, God could trust him with his heart. God could bring Moses in real close and say, Now, Moses, here's something I want to tell you. Here's something I want to show you. Here's something I want to reveal to you. And God and Moses talked just like this, face to face. Like a man speaks to a friend. Oh, I wish I could pray like so-and-so. I wish I knew the Bible like so-and-so. I wish God would say something to me out of the Word like He says to other people. Well, you need to quit, quit treating God like He's a distant, unwanted relative, and you need to start talking to Him like He's your friend. 
and you'll find out he's got all kinds of things he wants to tell you. But you've got to want to listen. You've got to want to listen to him. So Moses was a man with a divine perspective. You know, Jesus never revealed the meaning of his parables to the Pharisees or to the crowd. He only told his intimate disciples what the parables meant. He said, I've spoken in parables to hide it from some, but to you I'm going to reveal what I meant by that. Are you intimate enough with God that he can reveal to you what he's really up to? What he's got going on, what his heart is, what his desire is for the church, but most of all for your life. And then Moses passed the test of motives. He passed the test of motives. When the nation turned to worship the golden calf, God got angry in chapter 32. Look at chapter 32 and verse 9. Exodus chapter 32 and verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now let then let me alone that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. Verse 31. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin. Moses didn't deny that the people were acting evil. He admitted they have committed a great sin, and they have made a God of gold for themselves. But now, if you will forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out of your book, which you have written. Moses passed the test of motives. Did you just see what he said? God said, Moses, I tell you what, buddy. We're friends. We talk face to face. I tell you what, Moses, I'm going to wipe the whole crowd out. I'm sick of them. They're obstinate. I'm tired of hearing their murmuring. I'm tired of their complaining. I'm tired of their griping about everything. I'm just going to kill the whole bunch. You get out of my way, and I'm going to smote them all. I mean, we're going to have French fried Hebrews right here. And I'm going to take you, Moses. We're going to forget all these other people, and I'm going to take you, and I'm going to start over. Where I started with Abraham, I'll start over again with you. And Moses said, Lord, if you won't forgive them, blot my name out of the book. I want to tell you why Moses passed the test of motives. Moses said to God, God, I'd rather you send me to hell than you deal with these people the way they deserve to be dealt with. I would rather you send me to hell for eternity than you blot out these people. Now, I've got to tell you something. If I'd been Moses, I'd have said, all right. Dad Gummer, about time. I was wondering when you're going to see things my way, Lord. You know, I've been kind of tired of the griping and complaining too. Lord, I'm glad you brought that up. I tell you what, you know, I, I feel pretty good. I, you know, I may be a little over 80, but I, you know, I think we can handle this. We can start a new nation. Abraham started a new nation when he was old. I believe we can start one. I tell you what, Lord, you just kill them and we'll start over. But Moses cared more about the people than he cared about himself. And by the way, 
That's the total emptying of yourself. When you could pray to God, God, as Paul prayed for the nation of Israel, God, if they could be saved, I'd be willing to go to hell. That's a level most of us will not get to. Lord, if you could save them, I'd be willing for you to blot my name out of the book. I've got to be honest with you. Moses wasn't willing to profit at their expense. He wasn't willing, uh, he was willing to sacrifice his position with God so that the people might be spared. I've got to be honest with you. I'm not willing to do that for you. You give me a choice tonight, whether I get to go to heaven or you get to still be obstinate people, I'm going to tell you something. You just be obstinate. I'm not going to hell for you. And you wouldn't go to hell for me either. That may be why we don't see the glory of God. It's because we're not willing to give up anything for anybody else. It's got to be our way. The only glory we're interested in is our own glory. The only thing we care about is ourselves. And I don't know, I just, I, I'm sorry. You know, I love you. But even after nine years, I don't love you enough to tell God to wipe my name out of the book of life just so you can get happy. And you don't love me that much either. And maybe that's why we don't see the glory of God. Maybe that's why the best we are is stuck at the level with Joshua. We want to see God do something, but we're just not sure we want to pay the price to see him do it all because of what it might cost us, what he might require of us. Remember the woman with the issue of blood? She'd exhausted all her resources. She had no further help. She was dying. Jesus was on his way to the house of Jairus, and there was a crowd of people around Jesus, and she pressed through the crowd, and the King James says she pressed through and she touched the hem of his garment, and immediately she was made whole. And the gospel says that Jesus stopped and said, Who touched me? And Peter said, Lord, who touched you? That's the stupidest question you've asked all week. Who touched you? There's a whole crowd around you. We're working our way through this crowd. These people are pressing in on you. They're thronging you. They're pushing up against you. Everybody's trying to reach out and grab you. And Jesus said, no, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out of me. Folks, the problem with Sherwood Baptist Church tonight is that we're at the foot of the mountain or we're up with the priest and we're all thronging in and we're rubbing shoulders and we're fighting for parking spaces and looking for seats and trying to find out if the bathrooms are empty and everything. I mean, we're just pushing around and we're thronging. We're, we're hoping that somehow in the midst of all this, moving around, God's going to somehow speak to us. Here's what I want to ask you. When's the last time 
Jesus Christ turned to his father and said, Father, Sherwood Baptist Church has touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out of me. When's the last time that the Lord Jesus so saw us desperate for what God wanted to do with him that he perceived that power was going out? Or are we content just to be a better than average church with good things going on? And as long as we've at least thronged Jesus, we kind of got in a circle. We could see him over a few heads. But have we touched him? This woman didn't have much faith. All she had was faith. No, if I touch Jesus, my life's going to be different. Do you have enough faith to work through the crowd and to work through opinions and to work through somebody who'll think if you kneel down at this altar broken before God, do you have enough faith to say, Lord, if I could just touch you tonight, I know things would be different in my life. For too much of my life, I have thronged Jesus. I've pushed around, gone with the crowd, stayed where everybody was going, been content to do a little bit like Joshua, but I'm going to tell you something. It's time for me to become more like Moses, to want to see the glory of God. We don't need another meeting. We don't need another worship service. We don't need another campaign. We don't need another event. We don't need another program. We need God to touch us. This woman didn't wait for Jesus to ask her if she wanted to be touched. This woman reached out and grabbed a hold of the hem of his garment. Whether he knew it or not, she just said, I just believe something's there. And I think the Lord God of heaven is tonight just waiting, waiting for some church somewhere to say, God, we want to get to the top. We don't want to get halfway there and roll back down. We want to get to the top. We don't want to come and eat and fellowship and have our party and have our good feelings and walk out with grins on our face and just go back to business as usual. We want to get to the top. We want to love people like you love people. We want to love you like we're supposed to love you. We want to care about the things that you care about. We want to touch you, but more than that, God, we want you to touch us. I go back to 1989. And I remember Manly Beasley. Who wants to see the glory of God? Well, I'm going to tell you something, folks. Sherwood Baptist Church is going to have to make some major adjustments if we want to see the glory of God. Because we've got to quit listening to the Word and we've got to start obeying it. And these altars are going to have to start having people at them, not men standing there with their arms folded waiting for the invitation to be over. God will never touch this church until some of the men in this church and all of the men in this church decide we're going to quit playing games and we're going to be spiritual leaders no matter what that means. 
And until we get surrendered and submissive to God and quit walking around with our male ego and trying to display our testosterone to everybody and start saying, God, the only thing that matters is not what people think, it's what you think. You know what the problem with our church is tonight? We're too proud of Sherwood. We're not humbled enough by Jesus. We're too proud of who we think we are and what we think we can do. And as long as we're that way, God will say, don't get any closer. I'm going to hold you to distance until you get ready to let me do what I want to do. When you let me do what I want to do, then the glory will come. We're glad that you have joined us for the Sherwood Hour from Sherwood Baptist Church in Albany, Georgia. If you would like a copy of today's service, please send us your name and address to the Sherwood Hour, 2201 Whispering Pines Road, Albany, Georgia, 31707. That's the Sherwood Hour, 2201 Whispering Pines Road in Albany, Georgia, zip code 31707. If you would like a videotape of our worship celebration, kindly enclose $10 with your order. Or if you would like an audio cassette of our pastor's message, enclose $3 with your order. Remember to include your complete name, address, and telephone number. And ask for the tape number that you see on the screen. We would enjoy hearing from you by mail or by phone. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to visit with us here at Sherwood. And we hope that you'll join us again next week at this time for the Sherwood Hour from Sherwood Baptist Church in Albany, Georgia. Jesus stuff just isn't for me. That's it. Call it. Time of death, 2.37 p.m. <gasps> Come to Jesus today. Tomorrow may be too late. A message from Sherwood Baptist Church.